Hey everyone, it's been a hot second, but I am officially graduated with my master's in public policy and back to producing this podcast. I am so excited to be with you again. Given my life shifts and new career, the content of these conversations may change a bit, but I hope you'll find them even more useful in today's increasingly polarized culture. I've got some very interesting people on tap, and I can't wait to share the first of those with you, Hattie Mitchell. Hattie is the founder of a charter school in downtown Los Angeles called Crete Academy, which provides education for those most at risk, children in inner cities, many of whom are homeless. Whether or not you have children, you should be interested in the education young people are receiving. Kids are our gateway to the future, and unfortunately, many public school systems, particularly those in large cities, are failing our kids. Hattie and I discuss her inspiration and motivation for starting her charter school and the hierarchy of needs of underserved children. Hattie explains exactly what a charter school is, which is sometimes confusing for people. I know I didn't quite understand it until recently. We also discuss the importance of family and home life and how it is different, particularly in the black culture. Hattie opened my eyes to the reality of the challenges in the type of environments she serves. And it is not an understatement to say she is literally an angel on earth. I am blown away by her compassion, tenacity, and strength to get up every day and give to those who most would turn their back on. I know you will be too. So without further ado, it is an honor to bring you this conversation with Hattie Mitchell. Why don't we just start about telling telling everybody about your journey, who you are, how you got to start this school, and then I'll ask you some you know question more questions about schooling and education. Of course. Uh, so my name is Hattie Mitchell, and I'm the founder of Creed Academy. And I always start out telling kind of my story and my background as just being a six-year-old girl in my mom's car and asking her to give money to people that I would see on the side of the road with signs that I could read. Um, They said things like homeless and hungry, um, anything helps. And I just remember feeling a deep sense of empathy for people that didn't have a place to call home and thinking when it's hot, you must be really hot. When it's cold, you must be freezing. And at night when it's dark, it's probably really lonely. Um, And that sentiment really carried with me my entire life. Um, I first got to kind of formally give back to families that were experiencing homelessness with my dad. His friend owned a Popeye's chicken in Modesto, California, which is Central Valley. And every year he would give food, like Popeye's chicken, and clothes and toys to families in need. And seeing the instant joy that you could bring to someone by giving of yourself um, was really kind of an Kind of, I mean, I I just, I can't really put my finger on it or explain it, but it just felt like that was what we were supposed to do. And so fast forward to being um, an an undergrad student, I was at Cal State LA, I'd moved to LA for college and I was still volunteering this time uh, with serving uh, people experiencing homelessness. And this time I was volunteering at Union Rescue Mission. And I, for the first time, was looking at just massive homelessness. So there were thousands of people on the street living um, under tarps and in boxes. There was open prostitution, open drug use. 
um, and just violence and filth. And I remember I had finished volunteering and I walked outside the mission and I looked down and there was this little baby girl crawling on the sidewalk. And that was the first time I had seen a child living on the streets. And so I was, I was shocked. I was kind of frozen in my tracks. I became angry and sad. And I just remember thinking, you know, this little girl has no idea what environment she's growing up in and what she's up against. And I thought she definitely has a dream and she has some gift that she's supposed to share with the world and the chances of her ever being able to do that because of her circumstances are slim to none. And so I thought, you know, what, if anything could change her trajectory? Like if she stays in this situation for the rest of her childhood, what could give her an opportunity? Um, and being 18 at the time, it was clear, you know, even though I didn't know much about the world, I knew if she got a good education, she just might have a chance. And so it was that day, almost 15 years ago, that I dedicated my life to creating opportunities for kids like that little girl. And in 2017, I opened Creed Academy with my husband um, and my sister, both co-founders, um, to serve families experiencing homelessness in LA. And we've now been operating for six years. We have 340 students at two different campuses, split across two campuses, grades TK through six, and we maintain a 30% homeless population annually and about a 95% uh, poverty rate. So in many ways, the school is in honor of that little girl and in, of that experience that I had so long ago um, and not being able to do anything for her at that time, but knowing that there were more kids like her that one day um, I'd be able to give to those kids. And how did you prepare yourself for that? You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to open a school. I don't even know where to start. Like, how do you, what was yeah. your, what was your journey to get there? That's a great question. I, I didn't know where to start. So I started in the classroom. I said, maybe I need to know what it's like to be a teacher. Maybe I start there and I work my way up and back down and all throughout the system. And when so you say you worked your way up and back down, what do you mean? Like within the educational system for in LA public schools or all over the country. And okay. so I, for 13 years, I call it my own apprenticeship. If you will, I, I took on various jobs within the education system to try and understand how everything worked and what mm. the experience was like. So I taught for two years in Pasadena and Highland park. Then I um, went back to school. I went to Pepperdine to get my master's in public policy during that time, I interned at the White House Domestic Policy Council, and I was the education-focused intern. And so at that time, I was really focused on federal-level education mm -hmm. policy and how that affects you know, what happens in states and in districts and in classrooms, ultimately. Then moved back to LA. I graduated from the School of Public Policy at Pepperdine and went on to be Dean of Students. So now an administrative role at a charter school in South Los Angeles. And then from there, I moved to Louisiana and actually worked for the Louisiana Department of Education. So now I'm seeing the state level 
um, Department of Education and how the funding comes from the feds to the states, how programs and accountability, et cetera, are all being rolled out and then, you know, rolling down and then rolling back up in terms of information and feedback. Um, then I moved back to LA. I went to USC for my doc doctorate degree in education and I worked for CMO, which is a charter management organization. And what I did for them was I opened charter schools around the country. So I basically learned how um, to get a charter approved, both on the kind of logistics and application side, as well as on the political side, how to navigate relationships and communities and garner support, et cetera. Um, and that was really the last step. Once I graduated from USC and I had worked opening schools for two years, I felt that I had enough information and resources to be able to open the school. But certainly back in, you know, 2008, um, I had, or 2004, I had no idea, you know, where to start. I just knew I needed to learn. And that was what I was committed to doing. That's amazing. I mean, one of the things I think that's helpful for me, that's been helpful for me is just always be a student. Even yep. when you have, once you have that job that you want to, you got to where you've been, is there's always something else to learn, I think. And I think if you go in with that mindset of always being a student, you know, you can't go wrong. Um, go ahead. No, I was just, just going to say, yeah, and you're still learning. I mean, yeah, we've been around for six years now, and I've been in the field of education for over 20 years, and I still learn all the yeah. time. Yeah. So explain to people, I think, you know, with as much as going, uh, as much as much as is going on, in the education system, a lot of stuff came to light in 2020 when everything moved to Zoom. Parents saw what was happening and um, what their children were being taught without their knowledge. <laughs> um, I want to get into that, but I, I basic definitions. What is a charter school? How is it different from a public school uh, or a private school? Where does it get its money from? Does it get it from the federal level, from the state level, from local communities, that kind of stuff? Yeah, so a charter school is a public school by definition. Okay. It's funded in the same manner as all uh, traditional public schools, like district schools, like Los Angeles Unified School District, which is fun funded on tax dollars um, by the local community, if you will. And so the slight difference is there's an administrative fee, at least in California, but in most states, that is... Uh, that is charged to the charter school by the district. And so the administrative fee is 5%. And so every dollar in LA that is supposed to go to a charter school, LAUSD takes 5% um, of that dollar as an administrative fee, which doesn't seem like a lot, but when you're looking at 20 million or 50 million or 200 million, it can be significant. Um, and so one thing I do like to point out is that Charter schools are held to a very high level of scrutiny and accountability, far more than district schools, and yet they are given actually less money um, to operate with. And so that's where a lot of like fundraising and private donations come in. Um, we cannot be discriminatory in our, our admissions processes um, in so much as we have not mentioned priority students in our um, application or in the case of LAUSD, your petition. So our petition specifically gives priority 
to individuals experiencing homelessness, which means I can give priority admissions to a child if they are in transition over a child who's not, if I have to choose. But in general, charter schools are public in the sense that anyone can apply and attend um, and they are free. But how do you get it up and running? Like, but that's a, but an individual gets it up and running, right? It's not the state. It's not, it's not an elected official. It's not, it's not governed by elected officials, right? Or is no, it? So it can be anyone. Um, there's, so there's, there's two routes you can have. You can have an umbrella organization like a CMO, which is where I worked before I opened our charter school. And that's a charter management organization. That's like KIPP. Knowledge is Power Academy. You probably have heard or seen them around the country. They're one of the largest networks. They operate like a district and they franchise their charters. Um, Then there's the uh, single site charter schools, which are basically, they call, are called mom and pop. And they're operated by individuals or a community. Maybe a group of moms has got together um, and they're not happy with the school district. So they open their own school. Maybe it's a church. Maybe it's a person in my case. Um, And so from from there, if individuals decide to open a school, really, if anyone, you can have a for-profit management organization or a not-for-profit. Not-for-profit is the most common. And that is the umbrella organization that holds the charter. And so you're thinking I is, is right. I feel like you're going in the direction of like, but how do you do that? So public funding and school funding is reimbursement-based, which means you as school provide the education, you provide the classroom and desks and the uniforms. And then after I see your data, I give you the money. So you have mm. to front load all, yeah, all, all of that money from the time you open. And even when you grow, for example, we grew to 339 students this year, but we're being funded currently on 250 from last year. So not until spring, when they do a true up with the finances and see that we have a hundred more students, will they give us the additional funding because it's always reimbursement based. And so to open our school, my husband and I sold our house. We sold our house. Wow. We used the, the equity from our home. We used $50,000. Plus I got two credit cards. This is not the formula for opening a charter school. I do not recommend it. I used two oh, credit oh, cards shoddy. at $25,000 each, max them out. And so $100,000 to start the school. Then we worked for over a year for free without collecting a salary because we didn't have any money in the bank. And any money that we did have, we had to pay our teachers and we had to pay, we had to buy desks. We had to put a deposit on our building. We had to buy computers, right? And pencils, just basic stuff. Um, And so we did that until we opened in 2017. We didn't actually get any pay pay until either February or April of 2018. My memory's a little jogged because I have PTSD from that. No, I'm kidding. No, rightly so, sister. <laughs> I'm, I'm, go- I'm going like, if there is a definition of saint, yours and Brett's picture should be next to it. No, we just did what we had to do. I told my husband I'm ready to open the school. He's, he's He knew it was something I wanted to do since we met. And he was like, but we just bought a house and we have a second child on the way. And I said, well, we don't need to, I figured it out. We don't need to worry about the house. And he's like, what's the plan? I'm like, we sell it. <laughs> the mortgage goes away. We don't, we don't have to worry about it. 
<laughs> I'm sure he was like, let me do the math on that. Yeah. Wow. Well, how has, you know, I, I like to touch on faith and spirituality in, in some part in all of these conversations. I believe if that's the foundation of your life, that, you know, if you're a Christian, that should bleed into everything, right? It's not separate. So I don't know what your faith is. I'm not sure what your spiritual background is, but it seems to me you have to have one if you're out <laughs> in the world doing something like this. Yeah, I think you do. I think you have to be in tune with, you know, in my case, in tune with God. Um, I am a Christian um, and anyone that's not, this is just a, an exercise in my faith, honestly, because it makes no practical sense to sell your home and try to open a school when you've never run a school, you have no idea how it's going to go. You could lose everything. Right. Um, and so it's been a complete, you know, walk by faith, not by sight, because had I looked at the practicality of everything, you know, taking out two credit cards at $25,000 each with like a 15% APR and having that debt for two years, paying it back personally, because that's what I used to open the school just is, doesn't make any sense. Right. I mean, that, that just doesn't make practical sense. I couldn't get a loan anywhere because I had no financials. No one knew Creed Academy. I was just an idea. So I had to personally take on the debt. Um, and I think that when you, you know, when you know that you're doing what you're called to do, and that comes from just a clear connection with a higher power with God, um, you have peace, even if it doesn't make sense, right. Even if you can't answer people's questions, even if it on paper, it's like, I don't know I, that I should be doing this you have extreme peace and it all works out. Um, my kind of the, I think my main verse that in the Bible that I just always think, think on and ponder is, you know, if when I was hungry, you fed me when I was, you know, lonely, you comforted me, et cetera. And if you've done it to the least of these, you, you've done it to me. And so I believe, you know, God is in all of us. And if I have anything to give a dollar, a school, uh, my time, a smile, it is my duty and responsibility to give that to our people, to God's people. We are all representations of something so beautiful. Um, so yes, faith is, is a huge part. And probably the only reason I do this, because if I didn't have faith, I would be telling myself like, this is crazy. Don't, don't do it. Yeah. What do you have a, do you have a, I mean, I just, I've, I've been down there and I know some of the stories from the school and um, one of my classmates is working there now. So we, we chat a little bit and this is not your ordinary school and it's not your ordinary teaching job. What is, what do you do daily? <laughs> and we'll get into that, but what do you do daily to fortify yourself? You know, you also have how many kids, three or four, four kids, right? Okay. Yeah. Like I said, saint level here. Um, <laughs> no, not what, at all. <laughs> what do you do? You. How, what do you do daily? How how do you do it? And I know you've got a great partner in crime with you there too. But. Yeah, I mean a lot of help. My family has helped me a lot. Um, strangers, volunteers have helped. Um, I'm I'm very 
very intentional with my time. Um, I remember last week, you know, that was my time that I had carved out with my son. And I'm like, I know I, I said we would do this interview, but I also told my son and, you know, it's like, I'm working a lot of hours each day. And when I carve out time for my kids, especially one-on-one, um, I want to make that meaningful. So just being really intentional with my time, um, and staying grounded, you know, I, I look at this work as it's what I'm supposed to do. And so when I, when I view it in the sense of this is just what I'm supposed to do, it helps me from, helps me from becoming too elevated or falling too low. Right. So I can't really be swayed either way because there's days when people come down on me, there's days when things are said or done. Um, you know, when you're doing what people call God's work, many times have, they've said that to me, there's, there's forces working against you as well. Like the, it, it just happens that way. I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and so there's days that that happens, but if I know that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, I, it helps me to stay on track. Um, and then even on the flip side, when there's times of success and notoriety or attention, if I can stay grounded in, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. It, it keeps me humble. It keeps me from thinking this is about me. It helps me keep ego out. And so I would say that's probably the, the, it's the mindset that I try to maintain, um, which is you're doing what you're supposed to do at all times so that I can stay level and grounded. Yeah. I think that was a big shift for me is that this is not for me, right? Like a lot of times my work and I, and I knew it was helping other people and like the health and wellness industry and teaching was a, was a great joy, but like, it, it, it always did seem to, there was no, no one else that was for, like, it was for me still. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. And, and now I feel like I'm just the vessel. I am just, I'm yeah. trying to be the empty container and it, it, it might not show up like it shows up for you, you know, like you have a very special role, obviously God has called you to a very special purpose. And um, I think you touched on something that is so important is that when you know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, there's a sense of peace about it. Yeah. When either someone's elevating you way high or someone's trying to take you down way low. Right. There's just this evenness about it. I remember I used to be up and down like, oh, I'd get a job and I'd be really up and feel high. And then these crashes when no one was paying attention. Right. And, and now it's like, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I get exactly what you're saying. And I don't think I would have gotten what you were saying like two years ago. <laughs> well, that's great. And there is, I mean, there's just an overwhelming piece, which is it's, um, you know, the piece that surpasses all understanding, but also the piece that can sustain you when things don't appear um, at, at the surface, right. Or in the physical, um, in ways that, that makes sense to us. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned, you know, you're obviously serving a um, disadvantaged, probably very challenged group of society. And how does that different differ from some of the other schools you worked in? You know, what wh what are your main challenges? Well, the challenges are the same. Um, I would say that our school is is not that much different in, in terms of the population of most of the other public schools in South Central mm -hmm. uh, or in any impoverished urban city around the country. 
The difference is the intentionality around how we serve those students mm -hmm. because the public education system is designed for a very specific type of child. And that child is one who has educated parents, who I mean, two parents, right? Educated, they do homework with them. They have extracurriculars. They have medical, dental, mental health resources if they need them. They have a bed. They have a home. They have clothes and socks and underwear. And all of those things I mentioned, almost the majority of kids living in poverty, especially those that are experiencing homelessness, they don't have any of those things. They likely have one parent. It's a mom or a grandma, or they might be in foster care. They don't have clean clothes. They're moving around from motels to, to trailers, um, to living in cars, to shelters. Um, they don't have access to medical, to dental, to mental health resources, all of the things that just help you feel whole as a human, right? And on top of that, their situations are compounded um, by all of the things that come with poverty, like being hungry, um, being stressed, having high um, adrenaline and cortisol levels and low you know, dopamine and serotonin levels, which is what makes us feel good and feel balanced. It's all of these things. You know, They're constantly in the fight mode flight or fight because they're not safe. They're not secure. They're not stable. Um, and so what makes us different is we've designed a model. And I've talked to you a little bit about this, but it's built on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is very clear about how we have to address our human, most human innate, you know, physical needs for food, shelter, belonging, before we can ever, even as humans want to achieve intellectual needs. And as a school for years, it took me a long time to say that that was more important than educating our kids with like math and reading and writing. Now I have no problem saying it because it's true. We cannot expect our kids, especially those living in poverty and those experiencing homelessness to be able to sit through an entire day of math and science and reading when they have a toothache, they don't know where they're gonna sleep at night and they just witnessed you know, someone get shot or lost a family member or their dad's in jail, or they don't have parents and they're in foster care. I mean, just even talking about it is overwhelming to think about. And that's what our kids are faced with. And so these kids are at every school. They're just not being served. They're falling under the radar. Um, they're not being served. And it's not because people don't want to. Um, most people that go into the field of education have big hearts and big dreams to serve kids. So it's not ever because they don't want to. It's because they don't know how. And it's difficult. It's time consuming. It's expensive. And it requires intentionality and forethought. Um, and that's what we really try to do with building our model to serve those students um, so that it is easy, so that we have resources in place to give to our families and our students when they need them. So, so the stuff you said brought up two wildly different questions in my head. And I'm going to say them both at the same time so I don't risk losing either of them. And then you can address address okay. them both individually. So given that you're saying, you know, these children are being completely underserved and our current model of education is not addressing them. Mm -hmm. How do we do that from a federal level? How do we, how do we come up with some sort of unified education system and expect these kids to be served? Like it, so I guess it requires some explanation of, of federal, state, local, how those funds get 
distributed and also how curriculum gets distributed. Like to me, this is why education should be such a local at the highest, it should be state maybe, but so local and so tailored towards individual communities. So that's the first question is that, that um, flow between federal, state, local on a curriculum and a money level. And then the other question is, because you said these kids are likely with their mothers or grandmothers. Mm-hmm. Are, are we, is the bigger problem, and this has been said, and people seem to just dismiss it, family and fathers in the home. And somehow this trend of, I don't know if it's a trend, but we have to look at facts. Like a lot of these kids don't have fathers. And so how do we solve that problem? You know, like, I feel like a lot of our education problems could be solved. And again, there is really, I say solved, (laughs) I'm using that loosely, but, you know, you have to kind of get to the root of these problems. And a lot of them are single parent households. Mm -hmm. So the first question around the current model we're not serving these kids because we aren't told that we have to, right? There's no requirements around if you have a certain number of kids that are experiencing homelessness or poverty that you need to have, let's say a food pantry or a mental health provider. There's there's no, there's no metrics. And so to me, it's an easy fix. I'm hoping to, in the next you know five years, solidify this model, package it in some way, Um, not only share it with schools to say, hey, you can do this work without any additional funding right now. This is how, here's the formula, but also go to policymakers to say, this is what works. And we need to establish some criteria. We need need threshold criteria. If you have 10% homeless population, you must hire blank, 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 or you must use this percentage of your funding to support them. We do it now with special ed. We do it with English learners. Mm. We do it with um, low income. But we are not intentional with families experiencing homelessness. There isn't the McKinney-Vento Act, which which is additional funding that you apply for um, at schools from the feds um, that you can, you apply to the state, and then you can use that funding specifically for kids experiencing homelessness. But it's not comprehensive in the sense that you know, we're saying it's it's not thoughtful. It's like, here's $15,000. And that's, if that's used up like after six months of bus transportation, let's say for the kids, we have to create a model that we can give to schools and then accountability requirements to say, you must do these things if this is true of your student population. We wouldn't do this in Beverly Hills because there's probably not a single student attending the public school, right? That has experienced homelessness. Although, if there were, we should still have something in place to say this is what what is done. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the the first part. And as far as the curriculum, we're doing a lot um, nationally around integrating SEL, you know, social emotional learning. I think that's a great start. Um, but why isn't that part of the Common Core, right? Like, why aren't we requiring um, our teachers to not just teach reading, writing, math, uh, reading, yeah, writing, math, social studies, science, but also teaching kids social emotional um, tools and skills and ways to process what's happening with them. That's good for all kids. We're humans, right? Well, Not- but what do, I, I'd say like, what does that look like? That might, that's such a vague to me, social emotional skills is like, that could be anything. What is that? How do you, how do you standardize that? 
Do you know what I mean? And and to what extent is that the responsibility of the parents? I mean, I think you hear a lot of this pushback with some of the social. Mm-hmm. Emot- they're like, mm, that's kind of my job. But again, you're saying the parents aren't there. So I think this is always going to be the yeah. struggles. To is this this is this the place the government should step in, or what exactly is social emo- yeah. emotional and and and? I mean, this is teaching like life skills, right? Okay. So in yeah. TK, in TK, which is four year olds mm-hmm. by, by definition, transitional kindergarten, you teach them to share. Yeah. Oh, that's that's that. right. That's one of that. the, that's one of the requirements. Like we're trying to teach them to share. We're trying to teach them to communicate. We teach them to use words mm-hmm. and not hands, right? Um, so that's just that is elevated, I guess, as you get older. And yes, it would be, it could be vague. It doesn't have to be. It could be a matter of integrate some kind of wellness, mm-hmm. you know, aspect, even if it's five minutes in the morning and you're teaching kids to deep breathe. Yeah. That can go a yeah. long way. That lowers anxiety, that increases oxygen to your brain. I mean, it's like this, these are health things. Yeah. This is medical stuff. That's yeah. so easy. And kids are at school. The argument to me is, they're at school eight hours a day, a lot of times in public schools, mm-hmm. five days a week, 180 plus days per year. We've got to teach them stuff that's going to help them in the real world on top of all of the academic stuff. Yeah. Um, to your second question, specifically when it comes to Black families, the bigger issue is this, this it's a culture issue. It is a family issue. And it stems from slavery. Slavery separated families. It separated women from their husbands and children from their parents many times. And that broke up families. When we moved from slavery to Jim Crow, um, and then what people would say is modern day slavery, looking at you know prisons and Department of Family and Children's Services, all of the government programs um, are overrepresented, have an overrepresentation of African-Americans and particularly black men, especially in prison. And so if you pull the father out of the, the nucleus of the family, number one, there's a, there's a decrease in a level of safety, right? If you don't have a man in the home, you're more vulnerable. You're more vulnerable to threats. You're more vulnerable as people. On top of that, you now have only one income. There's only so much one person can make. When you have two people, whether you're friends, partners, husband and wife, it's just better financially. You potentially could make a lot more money, which then creates a more stable environment. Um, And so we do have a lot of families, especially our black families that are led by single moms it becomes this cycle, right? Like it's been years since we've had slavery and Jim Crow, but the remnants of those things have become embedded in the culture, especially in the African-American culture. And as a result, it's very typical and normal for the father not to be around, even if they're not in prison and they're alive, just not being present in the home. And it has become cultural because they probably didn't have a father themselves. Their dad was either killed in prison or wasn't around. Um, And that's 80% of our students don't have dads. They're either killed, they've never met them, they're somewhere on earth, or they're in prison. 
that is the most, those are the three most common places that they are, but they're not in their lives. And so that does present a lot of financial, emotional uh, burden on that one parent that's left or the grandparent. And usually it's the, the mom, it's a single mom. Do you have any ideas of how to, you know, I hear this a lot too. It's like, it's, it is the culture you're fighting such a big, and people will say, well, that's racist. I'm like, but, but it's also truth. Like you go down and it's the culture, like to actually say if a kid wants to, I mean, I, I've heard of this, that a kid somehow has the, the spirit and something in him wants to achieve and accelerate. Right. And, and seeks it out then they're kind of shamed for not complying with their, with, with what their culture is, right? Like they want to learn. And if they don't speak in the way their culture does, which is not always the most educated, um, or if they don't listen to the rap music, or if they, they're trying to get themselves out of it potentially. Mm -hmm. And then the culture is like, no, you're just trying to be white or you're just trying to, you know, how, how do we start to help that culture and, and help that striving, you know, how do, how do we spark that in them? That the the desire to do better, despite what their father has done or not done. Do you have any clues? Yeah. I don't, I don't think we have to spark it. I think it exists. Um, Maya Angelou, one of her famous quotes is if you knew better, you would do better. Right. And I I think it's a lack of knowledge, right. Lack of reference points. If, If you never had a father, how the heck would you know how to be a father? I mean, I had a mom and a dad and I'm still learning how to be a parent and I have a husband, right? So a lot of it is lack of knowledge. I don't know anyone that I've met ever in life that wakes up and has said, I just want to be a loser. I don't want to contribute to society. I don't want to do better for myself or I don't care. Um, It's usually the person, if that's happening, becomes disenfranchised and disengaged and they really don't know. And so a lot of it is education. And in this case, educating the parents, mm. the, the desire is there, the desire and any parent I've ever met, whether you have a doctorate degree or a high school diploma, they want their kids to be better off than they were. I've never met a parent that's like, oh, I hope my kid, you know, is sucks or is worse than you know, doing worse than what I did ever. I mean, that's just not what you want as a parent. And so we have to assume um, that parents are coming from a good place, Mm -hmm. even when it doesn't look like it. And this Mm -hmm. is something I have to really teach my staff is that they want the best for their kids. They desire something better. And if they're not doing it, it's because they don't know how, and it's our job to teach them. I had a talk with a parent this morning because he was called because his child was acting up. He wouldn't go to class and he was kind of hanging his backpack over the railing. The teacher didn't really know what to do. So they called the parent to pick him up. And so the dad's walking up, black dad, just got out of prison. Um, He's been in prison for the last three or four years. This kid is in fourth grade and I'm standing at the top of the balcony with the student and the dad is downstairs and I kind of wave like we're up here, you can come up here. And he's not yelling, but he's raising his voice from the bottom saying, I'm going to get you. I'm going to beat you. You know what? Wait till you get home. I mean, just threatening, threatening, um, being aggressive, being, um, you know, saying what he's going to do to physically, you know, hurt him. And that's normal. That's very normal. It's very typical. 
there's a lot of aggression. And again, this, this goes back to slavery for years and years and years. We've hit our kids. We've spanked beyond the, the healthy, I guess, if you will, spanking or hitting and it's abuse because that's what's happened for generations. And we haven't broken that. So anyway, with this parent, I pulled him aside after we addressed the child and sent him to class and just said, Hey, we've got to come up with other ways to discipline your son. I didn't say, I don't want to say his name and not hitting, not using physical violence. Oh, oh, I don't hit him. I don't hit him. You know, I don't really have to do that. I just say that. No, even threatening there's better. And we can talk about that. And so I spent about 15 minutes explaining to him how him being in prison, coming home, the mom's been a single mom for three years, presents a dilemma. While everyone's happy, they're also resentful. They're also angry. There's a lot of emotion. And so I presented, you know, therapy. That's not something that's very common in the culture. Hey, have you thought about therapy? Have you thought about structure and a bedtime? Have you thought about a family meeting where you communicate expectations, where you where you call attention to the fact that you haven't been there and you're here now and you're gonna do your best to make it as good as it can be, but you understand there's a transition. Have you talked through that with your kids? And he's like, no, but I'm gonna have a meeting tonight. So this parent who was literally yelling at his kid, I'm going to beat your ASS. Wait till you get home. I can't wait to get my hands on you. You want to act up? I mean, just going off comes full circle. And at the end, it says, we're going to have a family meeting, me and my wife and our two boys. And I'm going to lay out the structure. And then I said, you know, if you want additional resources or counseling, follow up with me, we'd be happy to help. But it's, it was 15 minutes of my time. I probably saved the kid from at least one beating. He may do it next time. I don't know. But I also was able to get the parent to see a different way. He's only doing what he knows, but I know he wants the best for his kid. Now, if I didn't have that approach and all I saw was this parent threatening the kid, I would call DCFS. That's what I'm trained to do. He's threatening to harm this child. He wants to hurt him and I have to protect him. And I think he doesn't have the um, you know, forethought or desire to do right by his kid. But when I come from a place of, I know he wants the best for him. He just doesn't know how it's a totally different experience. And, you know, in this case, and it doesn't always work, but in this case, he was able to come around. Yeah. Wow. I mean, so you're almost educating the parents as much as you're educating the children. Absolutely. All the time, all the time. Wow. I think that's a game changer. How often do you see that work? I mean, does that work more often than not? All the time. All the time. I mean, it's little things. Hey, what time does your kid go to bed? Midnight? Okay, he's five. He should be sleeping almost 11 hours. Here's the chart to show you. Oh, wow. Okay, I'm going to do a bedtime. You know, just what's he eating? What's he or she eating for breakfast? We don't eat breakfast or Kool-Aid, hot Cheetos. No. That's not nourishing. In fact, you're you're creating a lot of chaos in the brain and in the stomach. That's not going to help them sit still. No wonder he went to bed at midnight and he had Cheetos and Gatorade for breakfast. That's why he's acting out, right? Like he's not a bad kid. His system's all crazy. 
by the way, this needs to be taught, like, not just in inner city schools, in every school. You know, we're, we're, we're expecting our kids to sit in a chair when they're five years old for, like you said, up to seven hours a day. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. they're five. They need to be out in the dirt playing. Same. They need to be like, kids need to be kids. And I, in this push to like STEM and I don't know. I, I I get torn because I do understand the need for some standards, right? Some sure, some level of saying, okay, how are we doing? We need to measure this. Can they read? Can they write? You know, the basics. Can they do math? But like, I think I think learning how to balance a checkbook would be more effective than calculus. Yeah, you know, for a lot of kids, and then the kids that show that promise in in tech and stuff, go ahead, send them that yes. way. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And there's, we don't give humans enough credit. We are naturally curious. Mm. Bring in a piece, a piece of a branch from a tree. That is an entire science lesson. Let the kids play with it, snap it, smell it, touch it, pull it, and then write down their observations. Why do we need an entire book to talk about the different parts of the tree or whatever? Not that it's not helpful. But it's far more useful just to use the, the world. I mean, we don't give ourselves enough credit. We assume that people don't want to learn in general. We have to force them and we have to tell them why it's important. And then we have to make sure they're learning by assessing them once we taught them whatever they need to learn. No, we will figure it out. We've done it for years. We sent people to the moon, right? Like we built skyscrapers. I mean, come on. Yeah. And that's because we've evolved. Like we've created all of these things. That's what we do. Do you see the education system? I mean, I'm hoping, and I could talk to you about this all day, but um, that somehow it's going to evolve from this government one size fits all approach, right? And that more charter schools come around, more choices for parents, more, you know, more opportunities to say, you know, my kid doesn't fit this model. Yeah. And I see that even, and you see that even up to college now, there's people that yeah. are like, particularly with college being so one-sided as it is, as it seems to be these days and not really teaching critical thinking. All the only thing they teach is what they want you to think. And, yeah. and people are like, mm, I'd rather go lay bricks because honestly, I'm good at it. You yeah. know, I always use this example. I grew up in a small kind of, it wasn't all farmland, but we had a lot of farms, very rural environment. And we had vocational school for, for half of the day for the guy. And it was mostly guys. There may have been a girl there for automotive, for masonry, for electricity stuff. And they spent half their day doing that. And those guys are killing it right now in the economy because there's nobody to do those things. Yeah. You know, so do you see it? I don't know. I, do you see an evolution happening? Do you see changes happening? Did COVID help with that? Like, no, I don't, I don't see changes happening. I, you know, I, this, it might get too political or just in my personal beliefs, but it's okay. <laughs> the, education, the education system was designed to create assembly line workers, um, people that are yes, yeah. yes, sir. No, no, sir. Um, and the majority, you know, the, the wealthy want to maintain the power and want to maintain the privilege. And there's a level of fear around too many people becoming free thinkers, being critical thinkers, being able to be entrepreneurs or, you know, be self-employed or creatives. Um, because if too many people did that, it would create a high level of competition. 
And so I think there's a, an extreme desire to keep the majority um, at a at a certain level, you know, like average life or below average in terms of income and ability and education. And so I don't think that would ever, the government would ever allow that level of autonomy and, and freedom um, in opportunity and in education. Do you think it's a purposely nefarious thing on the government's part? When you say wealthy, is that everybody, is it like an elite political class is it anybody with money or are they just contribute? They're just kind of in the system. Like they're, it, they, they have no problem with the system because their kid gets through it. Okay. Yeah. Or do you think it's more wealthy. nefarious? That's the wealthy. It's the wealthy because there's this idea of scarcity. Um, I think it's part of our human nature because really we're not even supposed to be on computers. We're supposed to be out looking at, you know, bamboo and eating fish and berries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> you know, I, I always, I'm always torn. Like, it's not like we can go back to the, you know, no. the 1890s and all that where there was no technology, but it's it just happened so fast and it's taken over every aspect of our life. And it, it, our moral structure has been so torn and weakened that nobody has the self-discipline or self-control to resist this thing. You know, I have to check myself constantly and, mm-hmm. you know, constant self-awareness um, of when yeah. I'm turning it on, when I'm being distracted. And I, I don't know how you stop that train. I, I don't think you can. I think each individual we can, as as it sounds like you are, be at least cognizant um, and somewhat intentional. Um, but yeah, I mean, even thinking about the the issue of homelessness, I've often thought we are supposed to be living like them, not them living like us. We've come full circle, which is so odd to me. We we started that way. And then we industrialized and improved and innovated and and to the point where an entire sector of society, if if you don't have a certain level of, you know, resourcefulness or education or financial stability, you're left out of that matrix. You then end up back in that cycle and you're looked down upon in society for living outside. That's where we, that's where we started. We started outside and they're doing everything they can to be in tents and boxes and makeshift, which is just a, you know, it's just a, this weird cycle that I see. And I've told my husband, we've, We've created no different than, and I, I don't know who's your audience is, but no different than pornography. It's like, we're, we're naked. Oh no, we need to cover up. And we need to cover up a lot to the point where now if I see you, it's sex, we've sexualized it. Now I can make money off of it. And now you're, I'm, you're back naked. Where initially just our human nature, we were already naked. Boobs weren't a thing. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> With pornography, I see that a little. I, I'm not sure. Like, you're not suggesting well, that it's a life. natural thing. You're just saying it was exploited. Yeah. The body was exploited was to that point. But we created the opportunity for it to be exploited by putting on a bunch of clothes, and then yeah. now, now it's now it's taboo. It's it's like we started out outside. We built all these great houses, and now it's. Now the thing is the biggest house, right? The biggest apartment, the nicest view. 
when real, and then we have people moving back outside because they can't live within that system we've made, but they're living the way we were already intended to live. Well, and I think where the balance might come in, and I know I'm feeling this pull as I get older and the more I've lived in LA is like, I don't need a big house. I don't need fancy. I mean, I wake up grateful for where I am every day that I am warm. Like, I think there's a a balance, right? Obviously we want people sheltered and warm and comfortable. I mean, I think progress is not terrible. However, I keep saying, it's like, I just want a piece of land. And I think this is like the American dream. This is what the original dream was. I just want something to call my own, where I can grow my own food, be in nature, raise a family, like the simple things that, that I think are almost, I mean, again, I, I'm trying to find my, my balance in the world now as someone who's Christian and Christian values and like some, and trying not to be called a crazy, like, right. Like, I'm like, I'm no, I just, I really just want a piece of land. Want the basics. I want to be able to protect that piece of land. So if that's a gun, whatever, I want to be able to grow my own food. I would like, you know, if at some point I decide to adopt children or have a husband, a family and a life and work that whatever God's calling me to do, it's really simple. Yeah. And I think chasing after the view or the apartment, I think people are, I think that's one of the positives of COVID. People are like, hopefully realizing their priorities have been effed up a little bit <laughs> a, little, a little a little bit effed up or no, 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 no. They they're, realized effed up. they're effed up but I think to what extent did they realize people than I had hoped realized I I think so too I think I, a lot of people went right back um and even more some um yeah well, you know, I I come back to, I, I loved de Tocqueville's Democracy in America because he calls it, he's like, here's the problem. As society gets more comfortable, you will be willing to give up your freedoms to maintain that level of comfort and then some. Absolutely. So it's uh, a strange complicated. world. It's complicated. I know, I know. But we made it complicated. What you just said, um, it, it's it's so easy there was a there's a quote that um my husband has been sharing just week after week it happened, he got it about a, a month ago he was at a park and there was this dad and he had like three kids or four kids it was a lot of kids and he was just kind of like you know trying to manage all of them they were little and they were playing and he's he said my husband said something to the man and like you know you're doing a great job or must be a lot um, and he was like, life's easy. People make it hard. Mm-hmm. And it was that simple. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I agree. I mean, it's, it's, it could be very simple. Yeah. Well, and again, to me, this all comes down to like the God-shaped hole in our heart that everybody's trying to fill. And yep. and a lot of people won't, people won't acknowledge it because they're trying to fill it with things that, that will never fill it. Never fill it. That's right. That's right. So, and I think you're, the fact that, like you said, you have such peace amidst a job that is anything but peaceful is is just such a testament to your faith and to your beliefs and your purpose here. You're clearly doing what God meant you to do. Thank you. Yes. What did I tell y'all? A saint, right? I just love Hattie and it was an honor to spend some time with Crete over the summer last year and see the difference she is making in the lives of so many children. 
Thanks again for listening. And if you are so inspired, please like, follow, and share this podcast. Or if you're really inspired, you can write a review. If you have time, go back and listen to some older episodes. They are quite timeless, if I do say so myself, and provide a lot of tools for how to live in a day and age just like now. I hope you'll join me for the next podcast when I'll be interviewing another Mitchell, Josh Mitchell, the author of the book entitled American Awakening. It is so amazing. I can't wait to share this with you. Until then, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening and stay connected.